Uh, thank you all for being here again. Welcome. My name is Derek Abel. I'm the executive and discipleship pastor here and excited to continue on in our series. We started on Easter. Easter changes your family is what we're going to be talking about today. Somebody I think came in first service and saw the front of the bulletin. They were kind of confused like, wait, today's not Easter, is it? Like, you know, it says Easter changes everything. No, we're still talking about Easter. And really we talk about Easter all year long. But we, we don't necessarily use the word Easter in our series title, but, but this year we chose to do that, and uh, we probably never will again because I think we, like, locked the weather pattern from Easter Sunday in to every Sunday through the series. So, sorry, we're going to have three more weeks of freezing cold and snowy temperatures on Sunday mornings, but we'll, we'll have to just redo that next year, I guess, and pick a, pick a different sermon series or something. But again, glad you got up and, and joined us this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking, like I said, about uh, Easter changes your family, because we really do believe Easter changes everything. We see the six, I believe six, yeah, six weeks, the different, different things we're talking about. Obviously, there's many more that we could have covered. When we use the word Easter, what, what we mean really what we're really talking about is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. What we celebrate on Easter, Jesus raising from the dead after he was crucified, paying the debt for our sins. So that's really what we're talking about, and I'll kind of use those words interchangeably, Easter, gospel, the good news of Jesus, as we talk about that today and explain some of those more. But when we think about how Easter changes our families, Easter changes our families, when you think about family and change, it's you don't have to think very hard or long to realize that the idea and the concept of family is changing in our culture today very, very quickly. I mean, if you think back 50 years, which I'm not quite 50 yet, I'm in my mid-30s, but I think about when my parents were younger and the idea and concept of what people just thought of as a family back then and the ideas surrounding that were very different than they are today. You think about things like divorce, where, where they still, it still occurred, but it was definitely an ex- the exception, not the norm, 50, 60 years ago. People living together before they were married uh, was, was very rare back then. It was much more common for families to have more than one or two kids. And people just had bigger families. Not everybody did, but it was, you saw that happen more and more back then. And, and I'm not trying to say that was the golden age for the family. We need to get back to that time. There were certainly uh, significant issues during that time as there are today. But just, just highlighting some of these changes, because when we look at today, those kind of concepts, you think of divorce, it's much more common today, much more common. It's almost the, the norm and not the ex- exception. Um, cohabitation, living together before you get married, you're kind of weird and, and kind of odd if you don't do that, right? Um, people view it that way. Some statistics say that people will partner, unpartner, and repartner in America faster than any other Western nation. And there's a lot of different studies, and you can kind of, there's a lot of different reasons why they think that is. We're not going to get into all that today, but uh, especially in America, the family is, is kind of this fluid thing that's kind of changing all of the time. And you think about children today. You know, if you have more than one or two kids, people will look at you funny and ask you weird questions like, you know where, you know where kids come from? Do you guys know, know about that? And, you know, they just kind of look, look at you like you don't know where the kids are coming from and why, why do you have three or four kids? Why would you want that many kids? It's just this whole mindset. People, it's just changed. It's really, you know, if you, even one way to kind of highlight the significant change in the last couple generations is, is by looking at it this way. It, we've gone from kind of a leave it to beaver family idea, a mother, mother, father, couple kids, kind of that normal nuclear family, what they call it, to this idea of modern family, which is just a lot more normal today, where you've got, you know, some parents that are blended families, where you've got kids that are 9, 10 years old that have siblings that are in their 20s and 30s that are adults and married, and a homosexual couple. We've got all sorts of different things at play in, in kind of the modern idea of family. 
so things are, things are changing, and like I said, there's a lot of different factors for this, and we won't, don't have time to get into all that. I just want us to be reminded and acknowledge, okay, so the idea of a family is really this kind of moving target. It's almost moving so much that people are redefining what it means to be a family. And we think about that with the concept of marriage, how people are trying to redefine marriage from something other than what the Bible talks about. But how do we define family? How, how, do, how does a family defined? Can love, is it just simply love? Do you love other people and can you call them your family? Uh, is, that, is that strong enough to, to do that? Or, or is it you know, your close friends and family and, and other special people that you might have in your life? How do we define family? I think the best place to look is really in the Bible, the creator of the family. And that's where we're going to really start today. The Bible has a lot to say to us about the family. We won't have time to get into every little aspect of it, but I know we all probably have questions. Some of you may have been taught things from the Bible before and, and good things about it, and we'll be reminded about those today. But we're all a part of a family. We're, we're a son or daughter, a parent, a husband, wife. In a lot of different ways, we make up our families. It's something we can all relate to, but I want to really address this issue and really why we're talking about it is if Jesus rose from the dead, if Easter's true, then the Bible is true, and we can trust it and go to it for answers in life. So let's start where the family was really created back at the very, very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. So let's start here. It says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see here the creation of man and woman, and God kind of gives them some responsibilities. And then in the next chapter, Chapter 2, verse 24, we see this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the institution of marriage, kind of the foundational piece, uh, building block of the family, was created here at the very beginning by God. He created man and woman, both alike in some ways, both in his image, but very different in, in some ways as well. Um, and it's important to note, I think, that and I hadn't really thought of it before, but, or kind of what it means, but marriage is really God's idea. It's God's idea. And uh, what I mean by that is Adam wasn't, you know, in the garden, all of a sudden whining to God about, hey, I need somebody to be my partner. You know, it's kind of lonely around here, all these animals. It wasn't, God was the one who, who noticed and said, you know what, Adam needs somebody. And it was his idea to create one woman for the man, and they, they would have distinct roles, but equally important roles to play as they would be fruitful and multiply, as they would kind of govern the world, as it talks about in, in some of those verses, um, to rule over the earth for God. So that's how marriage, the, that, this foundational relationship of the family was designed. And then what happened? Sin. Sin came into the world and really distorted this through a lot of different ways, through polygamy, so multiple spouses, uh, divorce, adultery, homosexuality, dilution of gender roles, and kind of the, this blending of a lot of different ideas that, that really kind of distorted this original plan that God had set up for the family. So how can we get back to that original plan? I, you know, um, is there really a way for us to operate in today's world in a way that's consistent with, with how God originally designed. Well, I believe there is. I think it's, you know, we obviously need help to do it, uh, but because of the gospel and because of what happened on Easter, 
Um, it can really change our families in great, great ways. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at a few different relational dynamics within the family and kind of see maybe what a cultural, what, how, how it's viewed in society versus really how the gospel, how it changes it, how it changes that view for us as followers of Christ or people who, who um, can profess to be Christians. All right, so that's where we're going to go with it and see how the gospel affects our family, and then we'll finish up with uh, seeing how the gospel welcomes us even into a new family, which I know some of you, many of you are a part of, but it'll be good to be reminded about that. First place, first point that we're going to start um, is, is maybe something that I think sometimes often gets forgotten um, when we talk about families, but we're going to talk about the idea of singleness. We all were single, even those of us that were married, we were single at one time, and this idea, singleness is a calling, not a curse. So, uh, make sure if you're not married, to, to listen up during this part, and even you married folks still listen too. Um, but, you know, I think when you see that, um, some singles are probably thinking, yeah, singleness is a calling, that's, somebody must have the wrong number, because that's, I am not called to be single, um, I, you know, I am on the hunt, on the prowl, or whatever it might be. Um, but I, I, want you to, I want you to see, especially those of you who are, are in this single state, um, that singleness is not a, a junior varsity kind of level that you're at, and you can't follow God completely until you're married or any mumbo-jumbo like that. The Bible does not talk about that. The, my, the Bible certainly talks about marriage in and, 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 and a lot of good ways, and we'll talk about that in a second. But singleness is, is a great thing too, and the Apostle Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians. Um, Jesus also talks about it. Um, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, we, we see... Um, this idea, as, as he's talking to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul basically says, I wish that all were as myself am, talking about his singleness, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he has a very positive view of being single here. All right, so it's not dog in marriage. He says that, you know, in the last part of the, those verses, if you can't control the, the, the sexual desire and passion, then, then you should get married. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. But I, I think one thing that he, and he hits at home in these next couple verses, you know, for those of you who are single that think be, getting married might just make it so much easier to follow Christ and it'll just be, your life will just be so much better, um, Paul says some things here in, in 1 Corinthians 7 in the last couple verses of 32 through 34 that I think maybe challenge that a little bit. Not, not again, not dog in marriage, but Paul says this. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, went too fast, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So he's addressing this reality uh, of life, that getting married isn't automatically going to make it easier to, to follow Jesus. It is, it's not gonna, you're, you're joining your life together with another sinner, in a sense, in a real sense, two fallen sinners joining their lives together, it gets complicated. And there's certain complications with that that Paul says that as singles, 
that, in a sense, you just don't have to deal with. You, you get to focus and put your whole heart towards serving Jesus. And I know some, some people will experience singleness for a season. Some of you may, may experience singleness for your entire life, and that's okay. I want you to learn to embrace that and embrace God's plan for you and not view singleness as just this trial that you have to endure, but, but really see it as an opportunity. You know, Paul is talking in other places, he talks about just the, the, the ways that he can serve and give his undivided attention to serving God in, in ways, I think there's a lot of ways that you as singles can, can do that. Um, a couple of words of just kind of application and encouragement from an old married guy like me, um, I'm, I'm feeling older and older, as I mentioned in the first service, that my body, um, we had the guys not at the pack, and it's hurting pretty bad after after that. So I feel like I can justify calling myself old now. Um, but it's some words of wisdom, in a sense. I, I, I've seen some of this, seen some singles do this really, really well, and it's really inspiring. And, and, and read some things and learned from other people. But when you're single, I want you to really focus on finding your satisfaction, your contentment, and not, not in this future hope of marriage, but in, in Jesus in Jesus. And, and think about the ways that you can serve God in radical ways as a single person. And, and think about ways that you can be generous. Think about ways that you can get out of debt. If you have a job, you're, you're an adult and you're single, um, you can get out of debt a lot faster when you're, when you're just caring for yourself than when you have other people in your, in your immediate family. And so think about ways that you can do that and um, just get involved in ministry. And that, that's the best way I've, I've found and seen in other people's lives for people who have the desire to get married and believe that God has put that inside them to one day get married is, is to find their mate serving God. Just, just serve, serve him with your life, trust him for your future, and find people that come alongside you as you're serving God and they come alongside and you look over to the side and say, hey, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's the one. Maybe, maybe God has provided that, that person for you and, and you for them and that sort of thing. So that, that's just some encouragement there. Don't waste your singleness for those of you who are single and, and um, it, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be great. It'll be good. All right, let's talk now, shift our thinking a little bit towards marriage kind of the, well, as I talked about, kind of this foundational piece that God created. Uh, and, and the idea we're going to talk about related to marriage is this. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. I know many of you have heard this kind of language before and how we should view the institution of marriage. But in our culture today, marriage is very much viewed as just a, a contract, a kind of a simple social convention that people can enter into or get out of whenever they want. It, it really is, is viewed like that probably by most of the people in our society today. And one pastor explains this idea of marriage as a contract like, like this. He says that a contract is designed to limit my responsibility and increase my rights. If you and I sign a contract, it basically says that I'm in as far as you are. I commit to what I think is fair for me, and you commit to what you think is fair for you. And really, all that is, is as a contract is based on mutual distrust. And, and that's not what the Bible talks about marriage at all. And we don't have time to go into all of that, but it, it, is, it is just a, a, should be viewed as a covenant, an unconditional promise that, that two people make before God. And for a lot of different reasons, but we see in Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6, the, the same, he's kind of quoting the, the scripture from Genesis, but Jesus says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
So we see marriage as this uh, institution created by God, this covenant that two human beings make before God. And, and in Ephesians 5, it really spells out this idea of marriage as a picture of the gospel. And that, that's important for us to get. As we, um, for those of us that are husbands or wives, we, we are uh, a living representation of, of the gospel. Um, in Ephesians 5, it talks about how, how Jesus is like, is like the groom and the bride is the church. And, and in a lot of ways, that there, this, this relationship, the commitment, the desire, the love, the support, the, the um, submission, all of those things that, that a husband and wife show to each other, um, the Jesus and the church kind of mirror, mirrors that. And it's a beautiful picture for us to, to just remember and see marriage as this divine illustration, as a sacred covenant between people. And, and you know, just as an example of kind of how, I don't know, distorted our, our culture views marriage or kind of, in a sense, contradictory. When you think of going to a wedding, you, you hear people recite vows. Usually there's marriage vows. And, you know, those vows are often, you know, in sickness and in health for richer or for, for poorer and some, some other things in there. But they're making these unconditional promises, you know, till death do us part, before, you know, so help me God. And that's not contractual kinds of language. The, the, you know, when you think about it, okay, they're not, they're not saying, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you as long as you make sure we live in a three-car garage house and provide for all my needs. As long as you do that, I'm going to keep loving you. Like, at a wedding, that would seem so, so weird, so weird. We, 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 we understand in some ways, that, or even our culture understands the seriousness of, of what a marriage is, but we often don't live up to those standards. As Christians, I think our marriages should look very different than, than marriages of people who don't know Christ. Um, we should obviously view marriage differently and, and hold it higher um, as, a, as a representation of the gospel, but also as Christ followers, we, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us to give us the power to, to forgive our spouse, to, to have hope in the future, to, to, to be able to rest and, and be able to say it is well, like we just sang about when things in life and, and things go, go bad and, and things are difficult and challenging as we all, things like we all go through. Um, we, we should be different. We should be different. So there's a lot more to say there and you can pre- obviously preach a whole series on marriage, but we must move on this morning and let's look at the next point. The next kind of family relationship that we'll address is this one. It's about parenting. Children are a blessing, not a burden. Children are a blessing, not a burden. In, in our culture today, you know, I, I think children are sometimes viewed as just accessories to the parent's life. You know, and sometimes, at worst, as a, as a burden, as something that's kind of keeping them down from climbing the corporate ladder or, you know, traveling the world or whatever. They, they've got to deal with, with these kids and, and that sort of thing. And that's just obviously not a biblical view, not, not a, a gospel view of what children are, are, are to be. Um, how should we view them? Well, let's look at Psalm 127 for a moment. Verses three through five say this. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And so this chapter um, is a great, a great chapter on the family, on parenting. 
And it really, there's a few different points, and I preached through this three or four years ago um, on, on a sermon on parenting, and a few of the points I drew out from this chapter was, was this. One of them was that our success in parenting does not ultimately depend on us. And I, I, we see there in the verse, first verse that I didn't read today, but it talks about how the Lord builds the house. It, you know, we can labor in vain, but w- w- without the Lord's help, without him ultimately in control, um, our parenting is, is, is doomed. And so as parents, we, we acknowledge we work hard on parenting our kids, but we trust and pray our guts out for our kids and for God to um, save them and for them to do right. And then also our children are not our own. They're a gift from God, which is, in a sense, this idea of children being a blessing. We, we need to remember that as parents. And then parenting our children is to prepare our children for mission. So, so in a sense, when we parent our children, we're, we're not just concerned that they have shelter and, and those things. All those things are great. Um, we want them to get a good education, maybe you know, ha- l- learn good life skills, but not just for this life. We want them to be, pre- be prepared for eternity. So um, that, that changes some, a lot of times the way we parent here and now. So just a, ch- a challenge for all of us as parents to be intentional about the way that we um, spend time with our kids um, and that we prepare them not just for this life but for the life to come. All right, so that's kind of the, the parent-to-child. Um, let's look at the child-to-parent relationship um, and how, how does the Bible teach us about parents. Uh, parents are meant to be obeyed and honored, not rebelled against or forgotten. Um, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 speaks to this principle that parents are to be meant to be obeyed and honored, not rebelled against or forgotten. It says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And then in 1 Timothy, verse 5 through 4, it has another kind of principle for viewing parents. It says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So a couple things we can kind of draw out of these passages are that obviously children are to obey their parents. Children should honor their parents. And then I think in this last verse, it talks about just this kind of taking care, caring for their parents. You know, and in our independent culture, authority is, is often viewed negative. I mean, and kids obviously come out of the womb almost rebelling against authority. And that, that's an effect of sin. And, and frankly, we, well, as parents, a lot of parents, we, we've dropped the ball on this and let our, let our kids not learn to respect authority uh, within the family. And, and that's a, translated into a lot of different areas of our society. We see the effects of that today. But I just want to... Uh, Challenge again, if you're a child and you're living in your parents' home, the Bible tells you to, to obey your parents. Obey your parents. It's very simple, not always easy, I understand, but, but that's what the Bible, I thought my son was sitting, oh, there he is. Uh, he's not listening to that point. I was, that's, he disappeared. Josiah, are you listening, buddy? Okay, well, I'll have, to, I'll have to re-preach the whole sermon to him, I guess, afterwards. But, man, there was a one point he was supposed to listen to. All right, but... As we grow older, as our kids grow older, then our responsibility shifts from obedience to, to more one of honoring our parents. And the Bible t- talks a lot about that, and obviously it's within the Ten Commandments. Um, but what are some ways that we honor our parents as adult children? I think a lot of ways is we, we just, by showing them respect, asking them for their advice, sometimes taking it, even though we may not be obligated to take their advice, we, we respect their wisdom. 
and the time that they've invested in us. I know for me, um, a lot of the ways I know my parents um, kind of receive honor from me is by initiating contact with them, not getting so absorbed in my life and my kids where I still can um, call them, FaceTime with them, whatever, especially if they live far away, those sorts of things. Um, you know, show honor to your parents. And then I know a lot of you, um, several of you, um, are, are in the stage of life where you're caring for your elderly parents who, who are failing, you know, physical health or whatever it may be. And I know that's a very difficult stage. Uh, my parents are going through that now with my, my grandparents. And I just, I admire those of you who are doing that. I know it's, you have to make a lot of sacrifices to do that. And, and I know some of you put prayer requests down on your, your connection cards. And, and so we've been praying for some of those, not just their physical health, but also their spiritual health as they get, um, you know, later in life. And, and it really um, becomes more and more critical. Um, and every day is critical. Uh, but, but thinking about the next life and what happens after death, um, it's important that people are prepared spiritually, uh, most of all. All right, so, so there's some ways we should be thinking about our parents. Um, but let, let's look at um, the fifth point here in this relationship of kind of grand, grandparent-grandchildren. What does the Bible say about that? Does it have anything to say? Well, grandchildren are for leaving a legacy, not just for spoiling. And I made sure to put that just in there so some of you grandparents didn't start throwing things at me um, because I, 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 we'll see. I, I don't think it's wrong to obviously spoil your grandkids to, to some extent. All right, let's look at Proverbs 17, verse 6, and see what the Bible says about this. It says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. So obviously kind of this high view of grandchildren and this idea of leaving a legacy. And then in verse uh, chapter 13, verse 22 of Proverbs, it says this, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And just this kind of idea of preparing for the future, preparing for the future, because the gospel, you know, really within all these relationships, is shifting our view from, from the here and the now to the eternal. We're, we're looking towards the eternal, not just this life, but for the next life. Grandparenting then takes on a whole, whole new meaning. Now, I know I'm not a grandparent, but I, I know some grandparents, uh, and I know a lot of you are grandparents, and you've told me how awesome it is, and I know there may, may have been some pushback on this point about sp- not spoiling your grandkids, so I, maybe you can use this line. I'm not just spoiling my grandkids, I'm, I'm just accommodating. I'm, I'm just very accommodating. Um, and then as, as a parent of young kids uh, that love their grandparents, I'm not sure what to think about this quote. It says, the reason grandparents and grandchildren get along so well is that they have a common enemy. And I don't put that up there as a kind of a biblical model of grandparent, grandchildren. I'm not sure as a kind of stuck in the middle there, but um, I know that it's, it's funny to think about. But in all seriousness, you know, you, you as grandparents, I want to challenge you to uh, spend as much time praying for your grandkids as you do spending money on them, right? Like think about ways to, to invest in them, in, in, that ways that will last, not just ways that, that um, are temporary. You know, ultimately the gospel is when we apply it to our lives, as, we, as we've talked about it, it really changes every, every aspect of, of how we think and how we relate to people within our family. So grandparents, go buy your grandkids stuff, let them eat cookies for breakfast and let them stay up late, all that sort of thing. But, but pray for them, pray for them, pray for them, and, and find ways to reinforce those truths that hopefully their parents are teaching them. Um, if not, then you, you, you may have to think of some more creative ways to, to teach the gospel to them. But um, invest in their eternal future as much as you do their earthly one.
Lastly, we see this. How about Easter changes our family, welcomes us into a new family. Church is not a place to belong or a place to attend, but a family to belong to. Church is not a place to attend, but a family to belong to. And this is, this is the truth, that the gospel um, means that we can be born again. That language is used in, in the book of John. Jesus talks to Nicodemus about this idea of being born again spiritually. And we're, when we're born again, we're born into a new family. Um, Jesus talked about this some also in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, when he said this. He said, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and or my brother and sister and mother. This idea of how we relate to one another as followers of Christ is, is, is more than just good pals or good friends. We're, we're family. We are, we are family. And, you know, many other places we, we talk about, um, it talks in scripture about how we are to um, love and support one another. We'll read a verse here in a moment, but we, we call ourselves the, the Fog family for that very reason. Very reason. One of the ways that you really relate to others as followers of Christ is through your local church. That's, that's kind of the local family, the, the way that God has orchestrated it, the examples that we have in the Testament. Um, people related to one another through their church, and, and they were family with them. No family is perfect. Our church isn't perfect. We're not the only good church. Um, if you haven't been here long, very long, we'll probably let you down pretty soon if you stick around long enough. But it's just like any other earthly family. You know, we, we, it, in it, a biblical church, it, it's critical to our spiritual health. It, it, it's critical to, to growing in Christ. We're, we're made to live together in this community of, of singles, of married people, uh, families, young kids, you know, mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, all encouraging one another, helping one another. We, we, we aren't meant to live in little isolated community or isolated families. Um, the church is set up by God as a, um, just a family of families. And, and that's what we, we talk about a lot here. Um, one of the best passages that really describes what a local church family should be all about is in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. It says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it really just highlights this kind of the urgency with which we live and, and relate to one another. Uh, one, one pastor um, wrote in his book, I'm going to read this, really kind of explains what this passage is talking all about and, and really highlights this idea of the church, this family, uh, family of families being a visual rep representation, much like marriage kind of is, but it, it's a visual representation of the gospel to the world around us. He says this, he says, as we gather together to worship God and exercise love and good deeds toward one another, we demonstrate in real life, you might say, the fact that God has reconciled us to himself and to one another. We demonstrate to the world that we have been changed, not primarily because we memorize Bible verses or pray before meals or tie the portion of our income or, or basically listen to Christian radio or anything like that. We show to the world that we've been changed because we increasingly show a willingness to put up with, to forgive, and even love a bunch of fellow sinners. You and I can demonstrate love, cannot demonstrate love or joy or peace or patience or kindness sitting all by ourselves on an island. No, we demonstrate it when the people we have committed to loving give us good reasons not to love them, but we do anyway. 
Do you see it? It's right there, right in the midst of a group of sinners who have committed to loving one another that the gospel is displayed. The Christian church gives a visual representation of the gospel. When we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us, we, we, we commit to one another as Christ has committed to us, and when we lay down our lives for one another as Christ laid down his life for us. Together, we can display the gospel of Jesus in a way that we just can't by ourselves. And I think that, you know, when he, when he talks through that explanation and showing that, it's so true. It's so true, and it really... Um, I just reinforced that thinking in my mind of just how important being a part of a church family is for a lot of different reasons. And um, my wife and I, um, both of our families are out of town. We're, we're very close to our families, and we love technology that we can still stay in contact with them. But a lot of people, when they get to know us or whatever, and they find out, oh, you know, so your family's not in Kansas City or anything, they're like, oh, that, you know, you all, you all must, is it hard? Is it difficult? And in some ways it is. Yeah, you know, we acknowledge, yeah, it'd be nice to live closer to grandparents at times, and that sort of thing. But for the last 12, 13 years that we've been here, like, at the same time, we can say, you know, it really has been okay, too, because we have family. We have family here. Our, our church has, has been our family. The, the, you guys have supported, loved us, celebrated with us, cried with us, walked through the, the valleys and the mountains of life together, and we've been able to experience that in, in ways that we, you know, may not have been able to experience if we had had our family uh, right around us in, in, in town. So I know that it doesn't necessarily, I'm not advocating all of you move away from your families and just, just have your church, but um, it, there, is, there are some benefits to that. And, and I think if you, if you view church as just this place to come to on Sundays and, you know, I might attend an event or especially if there's like a potluck or something, like I might come to that next week, but you don't really feel like part of a family. Um, then, then I would challenge you to, to really think about and evaluate, okay, so how, how do I do that? How, maybe, maybe it's just beginning to do life more with the people in the church. Um, there's ways you can do that. I know Pastor Michael just told me between services as we were talking about this idea of how we, how we want to be a family. Um, there was an elderly gentleman, uh, one of our members, Elton, most of you know him. Um, he had a flat tire, I think, out in the parking lot. And Pastor Michael, all he had to do, all he had to say was, hey, can somebody help him? And like five guys went out there and helped him change his tire real quick. And, and so it's, it's a, we do what families do. We love each other, support each other. And it was just a great, great example of that on today as we, we talk about this. So, um, you know, as we close today, I just want to encourage you. Um, and maybe, maybe some of you are here and you're not part of God's family, uh, much less a part of, of our, our church family. So I would encourage you to um, seek someone out today. Don't, don't let that decision uh, linger. Um, if you have questions, you can write that on the back of your connection card. Turn that, turn that in before you leave or come find one of us, uh, myself, Pastor Michael, any of our other church leaders. We'd love to talk with you um, and just um, answer any questions you might have and, and just um, encourage you. So as we close today, let's, uh, let's pray and just um, ask God to um, change our families in good gospel, God-honoring ways, and then we'll, we'll move on. God, we are so grateful um, for your son Jesus and the um, good news uh, of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and what we celebrate each and every day of our lives, God. Um, we thank you that it can change every part of our lives, including our families. So God, help us as um, whether we are single, married, and we have kids or don't have kids or grandparents, um, God, we're part, uh, most of us are part of a church. Whatever we uh, find ourselves in, whatever stage of life, God, I pray that you help us to honor you 
and our relationships with others and, and seek to grow in those and allow you to change us uh, from the inside out, God. We love you, and it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.